0: Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Well, hi, everybody. This is Murderous Rates, and I'm Denise. And I'm Zelda. Hello, everyone. Hi. And how have you been, Miss Zelda? It has been
1: such a good week. I've been super productive. Lots of fun stuff happened. And I actually went to my aunt and uncle's for dinner earlier in the week. Oh, wow. That was really nice just to kind of chill out and hang out with them. So they live out on a farm in the middle of nowhere, and it's just beautiful. It's one of those places that's just gorgeous at night. So oh, it was that's really nice. nice.
0: How about you? What's going on in your world? Just, you know, after Thanksgiving, trying to get things back together because we went and saw my in-laws in Iowa and then came back and just feeling like I have to catch up. Oh, and by the way, we're on our way to Iowa. We are literally 15 minutes away from the in-laws house. We get a phone call from the school nurse saying, "I I hate to tell you this, but. Your oldest was a close contact of somebody who was just diagnosed with COVID. No. And so now my daughter has had COVID and she had the first shot for the vaccine already. So odds were in our favor, but it becomes a matter of your daughter needs to isolate. So we called the in-laws like, we understand if you need us to turn around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, nope, we're right. all vaccinated. Come on in. Right. Oh, good. Like, Thank goodness they were vaccinated. Yeah. And so, I mean, she got tested oh and she was she was clean and, you know, she went back to school. And yesterday we got the girls their second shot. And so hmm. in two weeks, they will be fully vaccinated. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. And this week I'm also scheduled for my booster. So.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. I got my booster last week. Actually, it was the Friday after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got my booster. And other than being tired. Um Well, I take that back because the next day I got kind of sick for a few hours, mm. but for the most part, I was just tired. so
0: yeah, my husband got his booster other than his arm being sore, he didn't feel anything, but you know what? he hasn't felt sick with any of the shots. Oh Nothing. good, no side effects. I'm like, maybe you have a natural immunity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> maybe they need to study you,
1: <laughs> or maybe it just didn't take.
0: no, I'm just kidding. oh, that's geez. not true funny <laughs> <is honey> woman. <laughs> Oh, that would not be good. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. So that's, you know, kind of what's going on in my world. And then trying to figure out, trying to get things together for Christmas that's coming up. And oh, my gosh, wishing all my Jewish friends happy, you know, Hanukkah this past week. And Mm -hmm. I I love the holiday time. This time, I'm actually excited about it. Last year, I was not. Yeah, last
1: year, it was hard to get excited about anything other than woohoo, they have toilet paper at the grocery store. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, but do y'all celebrate St. Nicholas Day? No. And I celebrated it once in my whole life. And that's when we really? lived in Germany. Oh my gosh. And and St. Nick wow. would come and visit the um base housing. You would see him walking around. Oh, okay. oh how fun. Oh my gosh. But I was. Yeah, St. Nicholas
1: Day was huge with, with my family. I oh, mean, yeah. we celebrated it. We put our shoes out the night before and we got some pretty cool stuff sometimes, you know? Like it wasn't just candy. Sometimes we'd get toys and stuff. So it was
0: pretty cool. That is cool. I think part of my forgetting is I'm like trying to figure out the budget just to, to get Christmas together. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah. that. And, and I. So the girls, you know, when they were out with the in-laws, they already got their Christmas presents from that side of the family. So I already kind of know what they've gotten. So I looked at my husband. I'm like, do we really need to give them presents? Because I know what my family's getting them. I think they're set. (laughs) We're getting them presents. Don't worry, people. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah,
1: I have no doubt your kids will have a haul on Christmas. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, you can tell when they're getting older, especially my oldest, who's 10, going on 11 here soon. And most of her list was clothes. Oh wow. She, we're not that's asking for toys anymore.
1: At eleven? That's surprising. She's 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 an old soul. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I think I was asking for toys up through
0: college. You know oh, I, you know. I'm like I might have been over it by fifth grade, but I don't remember. It's too yeah, far back. That's so funny.
1: Well, well we have a fun thing happening too. Oh I'm sorry, I didn't No, you. you I was about to say the same thing you were, so go for it. Uh, We have some really fun stuff happening today. So I have to tell you, I had not really heard about this person, Barbara Follett Rogers until like really, I think Denise, when you brought her up Mm -hmm. as a person to talk about. And I vaguely had recalled the hearing this story about this person, but it had been so long. And so I'm kind of excited because she was a really interesting person who had a really interesting
0: life. She did. Would you like me to just jump on in? Yeah, I think you need to because she is fascinating. Uh, Let me tell you how I found her first because I didn't know her very well either. It wasn't like I had knowledge. I was looking, because we've done so many murders and stuff recently, I was looking for somebody that was missing or an unsolved crime of some sort that we could touch on. Um, just for a little change of pace before you know Christmas, mm-hmm. and so I'm looking through and I uh, there's a list on Wikipedia for almost any type of crime, <laughs> and I found her name and I'm like, huh, and when I looked into, it, I'm like, okay, that's it, I found mm-hmm. the one. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, you know, some might call Barbara the infamous child of an infamous mother. But as with most child prodigies who lose their way, her mother was basically being shamed for being the parent who stayed, while her father led a life completely separate from the trials of his wife and daughters. So Barbara mm-hmm. Newhall Follett was born in Hanover, New Hampshire on March 4, 1914, to Wilson Follett, a literary editor, critic, and university lecturer, and children's writer Helen Thomas Follett. She had an elder half-sister named Grace from her father's first marriage, as well as a younger sister, Sabra Follett, later Sabra Follett Mersevi Tobach, the first woman to be admitted as a graduate student to Princeton University in 1961. I yes, thought mm-hmm. that was kind of a fun I, little thing. I had boy. that in my notes, too. Well, and I'm sure you'll have more, even, because <laughs> she, she, too, is actually pretty fascinating. She's so, pretty
0: amazing. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. This was a family of badass women. Like. Yes. All the way around. Oh, yeah. So she was schooled at home by her mother, and Barbara showed an early aptitude for reading and writing, and she began to write her own poetry by the age of four. Barbara was an imaginative and intelligent child. By age seven, she began to put to paper her own imaginary world, Farxolia, and to develop its language, Farxoo. And so, just so you know, much of my material today relies on com, a site run by her half-nephew, Stephen Cook. Yes. and So much information. Somewhat a child of nature, Barbara's stories and poems often dealt with the natural world in the wilderness. And she was an avid letter writer from the age of four and continued to be so the rest of her life. Her parents recognized her extraordinary talent at this very young age. Mm -hmm. Once Barbara understood how a typewriter worked, she was off to the races at age four Mm -hmm. because a typewriter could help her express her ideas in ways mere handwriting at that young age would stifle. Because, you know, you've got the words, but you don't have the hand-eye coordination to make the letters. But a typewriter just kind of bypassed all that. So her first published book at the age of 12 was a rewrite from a book she'd written at the age of eight for her mother. So the original manuscript had burned up in a house fire. So she recreated it from memory and her father helped her edit it. And this book, The House Without Windows, is a really lovely children's tale full of adventure. Mm-hmm. And it's in the public domain if you'd like to read it. So yeah. I actually have read about half of it, and I do really like it. Um it's you know, it uses you know the language that was common back then, so it's mm-hmm. a little old fashioned, but it's truly delightful. So and readers, not readers listeners, <laughs> if you get the chance to read this, it's actually like super fun.
0: and i I'll have a link to where you can read it because there's a website oh, that actually has all her writings available to read. Mm-hmm.
1: And so by the time she hit 21, she had published four novels, all successful and with high critical acclaim. Her entire life, she was a prolific writer of poetry, short stories, travel books, and novels, both published and unpublished. Until the age of 14, her father was one of her biggest cheerleaders, and she adored him. He betrayed them all when he struck up an affair with a much younger woman and abandoned his family. Oh, technically his second family to abandon, actually. And I am sure that Denise will get more into that later. Mm -hmm. But this threw Barbara's life into a complete uproar. Her mother and she decided to travel to the Oceanic Islands, including Fiji, and eventually ended up in Hawaii, where Barbara had a nervous breakdown. So just a little bit of information about Hawaii, because who doesn't love Hawaii, right? So it's made up of 127 islands, and it's an archipelago. It's also one of four states that used to be independent nations, Mm -hmm. which led me to realize Vermont at one point had been an independent nation, which I did not know at the time, as did California and Texas so settled by polynesians sometime between a thousand and twelve hundred ce hawaii was home to numerous independent chiefdoms but became a unified internationally recognized kingdom in eighteen ten remaining independent until western businessmen through the monarchy over in 1893, which led to the U.S. annexing it in 1898, and then it became a strategically valuable U.S. territory, so it was attacked by Japan on December 7, 1941, Mm -hmm. which contributed to America's
0: decisive entry into World War II. And that's in two days, the anniversary. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. That would be 80 years. Yes, yes, it would be.
1: Mm -hmm. 80th anniversary. And so, Hawaii is the most recent state to join the Union on August 21st, 1959. In 1993, the U.S. government finally formally apologized for its role in the overthrow of Hawaii's government, which spurred the Hawaiian sovereignty movement. Mm -hmm. So, I just felt that, you know, Hawaii actually plays a fairly large part in Barbara's life, her mother's life, and I know pretty much nothing about it other than the music slaps. So... (laughs) At that time, it was decided that they would come back to the USA, because remember, it's just a territory at this point. It's not a state. And Barbara was going to be placed with friends and her mother would return to Hawaii where she could complete her travel book she was writing and where she had a job at the Bishop Museum. Right. By the way, little sister Sabra is like back east with friends. So Mm -hmm. I just want to point out these parents had no problems just dropping their kids off with people and walking away. Could you imagine that
0: happening today?
1: I I cannot. No. Mm -mm. Mm. CPS would be called in so fast. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, I have more to say
0: on some of that coming up.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. there's I have so much to say. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. So, at this point, Barbara was staying with a friend of her mother's in Pasadena, California, and she enrolled in Pasadena Junior College. So, that actually seems to have been her breaking point. So, you know, let's just take a moment to realize, at this point, Barbara, her entire life, has never set foot in a classroom, and she's 15 years old. She Mm -hmm. has never been in a classroom. She's been completely homeschooled. And frankly, her parents were quite permissive. I mean, okay, when she was eight years old, eight, eight years old, she convinced her parents to let her be a passenger on a ship by herself to learn about life at sea. Yeah, she wanted to write a book about being a pirate. And (laughs) so she was like, well, I need to be at sea to do this. And so they finally... They, all, they were friends with some folks who ran a schooner, and her chaperone was one of the sailors. I mean, like, Oy. would you would you do that? Would you? Do, nobody would do this, you know. Now, it did turn out fine. I mean, she had an excellent adventure for an eight year old, and she insisted on doing chores around the ship so that she would learn what it took to run a ship, not just be a passenger. She's an unusual eight year old. <laughs> yes, she was. She was. <laughs> And honestly, the structure of a classroom was never going to be something a girl like that was going to take to. So what do you think she did, Denise? What would a 15-year-old do in dire straits? Uh, freak out. She freaked out and she ran away. Oh, yeah, As away. one does. She ran away to San Francisco. She was found pretty quickly. She was held in juvenile detention until they could figure out what to do with her. But Denise, the newspapers had an absolute heyday with this. Oh, yeah. Heyday. This child author prodigy girl in these dire straits. And I mean, it was headline news. It was Britney Spears cutting her hair level news back then. You know, because remember, her book was still quite popular. It had only been published three years before and it had been, you know, one of the best selling books of that year. So she was very well known across the United States. So, you're like, what are, you, what are we going to do with her? Well, they ended up, um, she was released from detention to stay with some family friends, not the family friends she was staying with originally in Pasadena, right. while her mother journeyed back from Hawaii, and her father suddenly remembered she existed and came out to California to seek custody of her.
0: <laughs> That's so,
1: just, yeah, I know, right? Eventually, because she was 15, she was allowed to choose which parents she lived with. So she chose her mother and they moved to New York City just in time for the Great Depression.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So at first, Barbara stayed with friends of her mother's. And this is the story of her childhood and actually her mother's life after she was divorced mm-hmm. was the kindness of friends. Yes. Because their friends are what really helped them survive All of the vagaries that life Mm -hmm. threw at them. So at first, of course, Barbara stayed with friends of her mother's, like I said. But then her mother had rented a room closer to downtown. Eventually, at 16, Barbara got a job as a secretary. And for the first time in over a year, Barbara, her mother and her little sister were all reunited in one living space. Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't all that unusual back then for kids to drop out of school at the age of 15 or 16 and help support the parents. But what I want to know is where the hell were her royalties? Like, I could not find anything on where the royalties went.
0: Now, under the laws of that time. My guess is it went to her father, if there were any. Right.
1: Under the laws of her, of that time, that Mm -hmm. those would have been, you know, would have gone straight to her dad because she was a minor child. That being said, what was he doing with it? What was he doing with that money? He never... We'll we'll get to that. I have a little bit of information. Okay, because I'm incensed on her behalf. Oh, yeah. Because she should never have been required at the age of 16 to get a full-time job when she had
0: royalty money sitting out there. Yeah.
1: So we'll get past my anger on her behalf.
0: I don't blame you for being angry. There's so much about this that made me angry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just... I'm like befuddled because her life should have been magical Mm -hmm. with her talent and the family that she came from. But that's not how that happened. Nope. So anyway, the next couple of years, Barbara kept trying to write, but the stress and drudgery of her life was really getting to her. As a break in 1931, her mother rented a cabin in Vermont from July to August and Barbara's writing soared, eventually leading to her second novel, Lost Island. She also met her future husband there, Nickerson Rogers, a recent Dartmouth grad now Barbara was no stranger to love um, on the way on the boat over from Hawaii she had uh, met a young man well young to my standards old for her he was 10 years older than she was Yeah. and they developed a deep and abiding friendship a little bit of romance on shipboard wait was it the Hawaiian one or was it the ship that they went to New York from huh okay I'll have to that's look that up that's a good question I'm not but, sure but it was a ship <laughs> <And> <laughs> And he was a sailor. They kept in touch pretty much their her whole life, but she did not end up marrying him. Mm-mm. Anyway, she grew closer to Nick. And I always want to call him Nick Nickerson, but that's not his name. It's Nickerson Rogers. And in 1933, age 19, she decided to hike the Appalachian Trail together with him. Barbara meant to write a publishable book about it. So in the book and to anyone they encountered, they presented as a married couple. Because, you know, anything other than that would have been scandalous in the 1930s. And honestly, they could have been arrested. Yeah. So after several months of walking and the weather turning cold, what is what do they decide to do? Well, as any sensible person would decide, they're deciding to go to Spain. Yeah. (laughs) Stay up and go to Spain. Okay, then. So after spending some time in Spain, then traveling to France, they crossed the Alps by foot through Switzerland and into Germany's Black Forest which is kind of opposite of The Family and Sound of Music. So I just think that's interesting. They reached Freiburg in early June, a walk of about 260 miles. Oh, that's nothing. So there, yeah, yeah, it's like a day trip, yeah. right? So there they met up with her brother Helen, and sister, Sabra. Now, they were writing letters back and forth this entire time, mm-hmm. and they had arranged to all meet up there. What I find interesting, though, is that, of course, we're talking about pre-World War II Germany. Right. So... That had to be interesting. And the entire group found accommodation on a farm in nearby Hinterzarten. I practiced saying that so many times and still fucked it up. <laughs> nearby Hinterzarten, where they worked in the fields in exchange for room and board.
0: Well, that would be really interesting because that was already a Nazi Germany at that mm-hmm. point. Yes, yeah. it was. I think that would be very interesting
1: to see how that all put, got pulled together.
0: Yeah, sorry. I just it hit me. And I'm like, wait, that was Nazi Germany already yeah but you know the united states wasn't
1: necessarily thinking nazism was bad at the time so that was still early days and they were i mean a number of people were sounding the alarm yeah but a lot of people weren't so yeah so her mother helen was working on a book the stars to steer by which was the second book about their travels at sea and barbara just you know was helping her write it and doing some editing Mm -hmm. and such like that So Helen and Sabra returned to the United States in September 1933. But of course, Barbara and Nick, the wild adventurers, continued to explore Germany before sailing back to New York from Hamburg, arriving in November. Instead of staying there with her family, though, because, you know, that's what a nice young girl would have done at the time, Barbara moved to Boston to be with Nick. She rented a room in a boarding house in the city while he lived with his parents on Perrin Road in nearby Brookline. Oh, yeah. So they weren't living together. They weren't living in sin. Not technically. Although, frankly, after having spent what a year on the, you know, mm-hmm. on the road together, doesn't really matter. But apparently, it did because we are still talking about it all optics back then
0: because people oh, for were sure. doing a lot of this type of stuff. But they weren't. Yeah, it's optics for sure. So
1: there aren't as many letters in the archive following Barbara's move to Boston, but there's a few short ones to her mother before the next concrete date in the timeline. So Barbara married Nick on July 7th, 1934 in Brookline. The bride moved into the Rogers large house on Perrin road, which is a quiet cul-de-sac near the Brookline reservoir. So the groom, the bride lived with his family during the first uh, year ish of their marriage. Mm-hmm. So they lived there through 1935 before moving to 125 Charles Street in Beacon Hill, around the corner from her secretarial job at the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions at 14 Beacon Street. I'm like, that's kind of a cool place to work, right? Yeah. Now, as for Nick, this is cool. He and his younger brother Howard were working for Edwin Land at his brand new company called Polaroid. Yep. Okay. That's yeah, I'm like, okay, that had to be really cool, right? <laughs> that did. So from 1934 to 1939, the Rogers' marriage went through a lot. You know, because Barbara was an adventurer, and she was still mm-hmm. an adventurer. So she was having a hard time kind of settling into peaceful domesticity. And Nick, he's working long hours. He's traveling a lot for Polaroid. He's even flying around the country. He's getting on an actual plane back when it was like, insanely expensive because there weren't a lot of planes Mm -hmm. and you had to be fairly wealthy, but you know, he's selling those Polaroids like hotcakes. So they moved to new apartment on Kent street in Brookline, Massachusetts. They occasionally vacationed at Squam Lake in New Hampshire. Barbara started getting into interpretive dancing and started taking classes at mills college where she Mm -hmm. took classes from the likes of Martha Graham. I'm like, that had to be cool. Like, oh my gosh. yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh. First of all, interpretive dance, like, awesome, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, it was really coming into vogue in the 20s. So it was still a fairly new art form, you know, 20 years later.
0: I'm getting a callback to our episode on, um, (laughs) yes, her. Yes, Uh, I know exactly who you're talking about. And let me look it up really quick before I... Okay. Oh my goodness sakes. I hate being a certain age where my memory goes, yeah, no, I'm not going to show up today. I would love to blame it on age, but I've always been like this. Well, I'm trying to blame it on age. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maud. Maud Allen. Yes. And her brother was Theodore Durant, the demon of the Belfry. So that's the callback to that. Yes.
1: Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Maud Allen. Yes. Um, where were we at? Oh, yeah. So we've reached 1939 at this point. Mm -hmm. And Nick has had enough of his adventuring wife, who spent her month's vacation away from him. He wrote to her asking for a divorce. Now, Barbara was shocked and bewildered and quickly made her way back to Boston by bus, arriving at the Rogers apartment on August 15th. Right. She found the place empty and some of Nick's belongings missing. She started telephoning anyone who might know where he was and tracked down a Polaroid employee who told her he was in New York, giving her the name of a hotel. But the hotel had no one there under Nick's name. The coworker thought Nick would be back in Boston the next day, but he didn't come home then either. So, turns out, our Nicky was having an affair. Yep. Since he said he still wanted to work on the marriage, and Barbara definitely wanted to work on the marriage, they stayed married. Now... On November 4th, 1939, Barbara wrote to her dear friend Alice, who she had a lifelong correspondence with, and this is part of the letter. But that isn't really what you want to know, of course. In my last letter, I told you things were going well, and I thought they were. They continued to go well for a time, at least I thought so, and I was happy, and decided that the worst part of the ordeal was over. But that, that was too easy. No such luck. I don't know what to say now. On the surface, things are terribly, terribly calm and wrong, just as wrong as they can be. I am trying. We are both trying. I still think there is a chance that the outcome will be a happy one, but I would have to think that anyway in order to live. So you can draw any conclusion from that you like. About a month later, on the evening of December 7th, 1939, after an argument with Nick, Barbara left the apartment on Kent Street with about $30 and a notebook, and no one knows for sure where she went. Mm -hmm. So Nick waited for his wife to return. After two weeks, he reported her missing to the Brookline Police Department. Now, okay, Denise, when I first heard this, I was like, what the hell is wrong with him? He must have killed her. Who waits two freaking weeks to report their wife missing, right? Right. But then I got to know her a little bit more. And, you know, she was prone to just kind of taking off and like, I have an adventure I must go on. I'm going to go on vacation for a month without my husband, which was a perfectly logical thing for her to do in these circumstances. Right. And she always came back, you know, or at least sent a letter or something like that. Right. But two weeks went by and he hadn't heard a thing from her, had no idea where she was. And so he then reports her missing. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, the police offered to publicize the case and Nick was like, yeah, no, no, we don't need to do that. And again, I'm like, ah, that's really weird. But then, you know, Barbara had a rough history with the press when they went insane about her running away in 1929. So that kind of makes sense too, you know, because I'm sure in the back of his head, he's just exasperated with her going, okay, when the hell is my wife going to return? Quit pulling this nonsense. This is why I want a divorce, right? The next thing we know for sure, so, okay. 1939 is when she disappeared, December 7th, 1939. The next thing we know for sure is Nick's return to the Brookline Police Department on April 18th, 1940. So this is several months later. This time, he did request publicity. And four days later, a bulletin was sent by Officer McCracken, I love that name, to eight states. And it said, in part, Missing from Brookline since December 7th, 1939, Barbara Rogers, married, age 26, 5 foot 7, 125, fair complexion, black eyebrows, brown eyes, dark auburn hair worn in a long bob, left shoulder slightly higher than right, occasionally wears horn-rimmed glasses. So nothing came from this bulletin. Using Barbara Rogers can't have helped. No one would have known that the missing person was the girl who'd made a splash with the house without windows 13 years earlier. Right. So there's just silence. Nobody hears anything. In 1941, so approximately a year after he had filed the, um, he had asked them to publicize that his wife was missing, Nick filed for divorce from Barbara. But the judge threw the case out saying he had not proved Barbara was being cruel to him because that's what he based his divorce cause on was cruelty. And that's what I found suspicious. Yeah. And it doesn't mention that anywhere that Barbara had been missing for literally, you know, years at that point, almost two years at that point, just acted like Barbara was embarrassing him at parties. And it's like, that's weird. That's weird. But on the other hand, I was thinking it might've been, okay, now this is me, you know, just kind of spitballing here. I'm wondering if he, you know, he'd been planning to divorce Barbara anyway. He was now at a point. He wanted to marry the chick he left her for, and Mm -hmm. he couldn't have filed for abandonment because not enough time had gone by. So he's like, okay, what can we throw at a judge that he might take?
0: And so they picked cruelty, which, then didn't fly so right because it was like oh he, she expressed her opinion and disagreed with me with my friends mm-hmm. was
1: <laughs> yeah and he was forced to hang curtains once like how fuck. dare she do I know, that to him, right? And so the judge was like, "Yeah, no, that's not good enough, right?" Which actually, I'm a little bit proud of the judge for that because back then, you know, women very much got the short end of the stick when it came to mm-hmm. divorce. So, you know, he was really protecting Barbara's interest by not allowing Nick to just come in and and divorce her, presuming, of course, that she was alive and living with him at the time. But you know, she had just disappeared. So then, in 1943. Nick went to New Hampshire and filed for divorce there. This time, his reason, as written on the decree, was absence for three years without being heard of. Mm-hmm. The divorce decree was issued on February 11th, 1944. Yep. So at some point after receiving a threatening letter from his former mother-in-law in 1953, which said... All this silence on your part almost looks as if you had something to hide concerning Barbara's disappearance. I hope not since I have always trusted you to the point of believing you were doing all you could to solve the mystery. So he hired a public investigator to conduct a search, but nothing came of it.
0: Well, Because he hired at 14
1: years after she's gone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because, and the funny thing is, you know, her mother and apparently her father weren't, as involved with the case as one might expect because they assumed that their son-in-law was doing Mm -hmm. everything he could do to find her. And it wasn't until she realized that he's done pretty much nothing that she decided to kind of put the pressure on. Well, and in this
0: day and age, I don't know that people quite grasp it. The media was not nearly as prevalent. mm -hmm. (laughs) Like if she had gone missing now and it took this long Mm -hmm. and took 11, people would know like, mm mm-hmm. So then if we fast
1: forward to, to November 25th, 1948, a deer hunter named Harold Huckins came across human remains entangled in tree roots besides Durgin Creek in the woods of Mount Prospect, which overlooks Squam Lake. Mm-hmm. Most of the skeleton, including the skull, had been scavenged by animals and washed away by the brook during snowmelt. But there were sufficient bones left to determine that they belonged to a woman of about 25 and that they'd been there for several years, at least since 1939, said Dr. Alan Moritz, the pathologist who'd arrived from Harvard Medical School to supervise the examination. Dr. Moritz took the remains back to Boston and conducted a thorough review. He typed up a report with many photographs, and despite a few discrepancies, the New Hampshire authorities concluded that the remains did not belong to Barbara Follett Rogers, because it wasn't even on their radar, but to Elsie Whitmore, a girl missing from nearby Plymouth since 1936. But what were these discrepancies? Horn-rimmed glasses were found with the remains, whereas Elsie didn't wear glasses, a retrieved shoe was a size seven while elsie wore a five five and a half none of the belongings including the purse could be identified by elsie's family at no time did the whitmores accept the finding that the bones were their daughters nor would the family receive the remains for burial nor was a death certificate issued Moritz used the Krogman's table to estimate the woman's height at only 62 or 63 inches, which was shorter than Barbara's 5'7". But Krogman's table has been superseded. So, you know, judging by the new standards, the length of the tibia puts the height at Barbara's 67 inches. Mm. A half-nephew, as we discussed, Stephen Cook, or Stefan Cook. It's Stefan. I looked it up. (laughs) Stefan Cook created a website about Barbara's life and work, farxolia.com. On the site, he mentions that a sensible approach to find out if these remains are indeed Barbara's would be DNA testing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, whoever had her remains has lost them. So there's no way to definitively know who the young woman who died at Squam Lake was. Uh And thus, this amazing child prodigy author, brilliant, adventurous
0: woman's life ends shrouded in mystery and there's so many questions about who could have done this mm-hmm. i have not ruled out nickerson i know her his her nephew has mm-hmm. Stefan, i i did talk well not talk talk but we emailed back and forth and he's convinced that nickerson had nothing to do with it and it's quite possible he's correct mm-hmm. but i thought i'd throw in a couple little things you know you discuss how he didn't report her missing for two weeks and that she had thirty dollars in her pocket that thirty dollars would be worth six hundred dollars today.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So thirty dollars doesn't sound like much to us, but it was it went quite far back then. And I get your points. I was seeing it in a different perspective when you're going through because everything is like, really, he was <laughs> he's wanting to get a divorce and uses all these reasons, acting like she's still alive. But I like your point because I didn't look at it from that perspective, Zelda. <laughs> so I'm like, well, okay, well maybe there is a point to that. I don't know. <laughs> Here's a little few more notes on Nick. He married Ann Bradley just four months after the divorce was final, on June 22nd, and they had two children. He was the son of Gardner Rogers, a successful electrical engineer. And in fact, in 1930, Gardner's home was valued at 13000 at 3 Perrin Road in Brookline. Today, that same house is valued at $2.8 million. Whew, that's a nice penny. Yeah. Nick taught in a special program at Dartmouth College, his alma mater, during World War II, then the Dartmouth Eye Institute for Polaroid, as you mentioned. Afterward, he taught physics to high school students at two different prestigious private schools, Hmm. first at the Loomis Chaffee School and later at Phillips Exeter Academy. Hmm. He died in 1980 at the age of 71 in New Hampshire. Hmm. Okay, so growing up, as Zelda discussed, Barbara's home life was chaotic and broken. It didn't help that her father, in my opinion, was the quintessential asshole. So let's start with him and the troubles that he caused his daughters with wife Helen. While Barbara's father and author was best known in the literary community as Wilson Follett, his name at birth in Attleboro, Massachusetts on March 21st, 1887 was Roy Wilson Follett. And that's how I found him in the census as well. He was always Roy Wilson. Mm. An only child, Wilson never wanted for much. He went to Harvard as an English major. After he graduated in June 1909, he would make his way south to Texas, where he got a job as an English professor at Texas A&M University. Mm -hmm. Then on Christmas Eve that year, Wilson married Grace Huntington Parker. And I have the wedding announcement from the Boston Globe on December 25th, 1909. North Attleboro Girl Becomes the Bride of an Instructor at University of Texas Roy W. Follett, an instructor at the University of Texas, and Miss Grace Huntington Parker, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Arthur T. Parker, were married this evening at the bride's home on High Street by Rev. George E. Osgood of the Episcopal Church. Gustavius J. Esselin, Jr., a Harvard student, was best man. The bride was attended by her father, who gave her in marriage. The ushers were Lawrence A. Parker, Carlton H. Parker, Arthur P. Huntington, and Samuel Spring. Ribbon bearers were Constance Foster, Rachel White, Richard Parker, and Ronald Hall. Following the ceremony, there was a reception with music by an orchestra. Mr. and Mrs. Follett left for their new home at College Station, Texas. The groom was a graduate of Harvard College and the bride of the North Attleboro High School. And did you notice anything missing in that description of the wedding announcement? Mm -mm. they mentioned her parents they never mentioned his parents oh that is interesting it's very odd okay soon the couple would find themselves expecting their first child in the months prior to the baby's birth grace moved 50 miles to the east of college station to huntsville texas a newspaper tidbit mentioned that she relocated for her health Mm -hmm. and this move leaves me with many questions Like, why would you leave your husband when you are heavily pregnant with your first Mm -hmm. child? What health problems could be solved by just moving into a slightly more humid area? I don't know. Hmm. Anyhow, on January 30th, 1911, Grace gave birth to a little girl they named Grace. This is important because Wilson's wife, Grace, died just two weeks later on February 13th in Huntsville. Oh. So he didn't leave her. He was a widow. Oh.
1: I thought that he left her.
0: Yeah, and I could see that, but I found—I'm sorry—I badmouthed him. I found this tidbit in the paper. This is from the Eagle on February fifteenth, nineteen eleven. Mrs. Grace Huntington Parker Follett, wife of Professor Roy Follett of the English Department of A and M College, died Monday in Huntsville at the home of Mr. and Mrs. W. O. B. Gillespie of acute heart trouble. Hmm. Deceased, was born and lived in Attleboro, Massachusetts, and came to Texas as a bride something over a year since. Her husband had been summoned and was at her bedside when she passed away. An infant daughter survives the mother. Mrs. Follett's remains were sent to her old home for interment. The mother of Professor Follett will arrive at the earliest possible date and will take her little granddaughter home with her. Mrs. Follett was well known in Bryan and was a favorite in society circles, especially with the younger people. It's likely that Wilson returned to Massachusetts to be with his family, especially his daughter, at the end of the school term, if not before. He taught in the English department at Dartmouth by the spring of 1912. So he didn't remain in Texas much longer. Around this time or soon after, Wilson would remarry, this time to Helen G. Thomas, a woman just four years his senior, who held a master's degree from Dartmouth. Like Wilson, she was also a writer, and they would write books together as well as some magazine articles over the course of their marriage. Their first child was Barbara, that we've discussed. She was born in New Hampshire while while Wilson was working at Dartmouth as an instructor. On September 23, 1914, Brown University announced the arrival of several new professors and instructors, including Wilson in the English department. He was filling in for a professor on a year sabbatical. In the 1915 Rhode Island State Census, I found the small family living in Providence, Rhode Island with Helen's mother, as well as a boarder. By 1920, the family lived in New Haven, Connecticut. According to Wilson's grandson, the blogger Stefan Cook that we talked about earlier, Wilson worked for Yale University Press at this time. The census supports this and lists both Wilson and Helen's occupations as writers. Mm -hmm. From there, Wilson would work for Alfred A. Knopf Sr. at his publishing house in New York City. Meanwhile, at home, Barbara was being homeschooled by Helen, though Helen did write in her downtime. While Wilson's job was in New York City, they kept their home in New Haven, meaning Wilson commuted. Mm -hmm. That would be a two-hour drive today. I can only imagine how long of a drive it was back then. Mm -hmm. So it's likely that he worked in the city during the week and came home for the weekends. Helen and Wilson would have their second and last child, another daughter, Sabra Wyman, fall in July 1923. So 10 years younger than Barbara. But Wilson was not happy with his life. Maybe it was a commute, or perhaps the fact that he turned 40 in 1927. If so, then he was the very definition of midlife crisis when he met young Margaret Whipple. Margaret also worked for Knopf. She was young, 20 years younger to the day of Wilson. Oh, wow. Yeah, they shared a birthday. I imagine Wilson seemed dashing to the teenager, and I'm sure Margaret made Wilson feel young and free. So in 1928, Wilson left his family and got an apartment with Margaret in Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. Side note, we're going to cover, we'll cover him in a bit. But I'd like to note that Wilson's father, Charles William, died in 1928, about the same time he left his, Wilson left his wife. Mm -hmm. So I can't help but think that this event made Wilson think of his mortality and Mm -hmm. led to to his decision to leave. Mm -hmm. I mean, selfishly. Because he didn't seem to consider what his leaving would do to his children, much less his wife. Mm -hmm. His departure devastated the family. Not only did his children not understand, but he left them without any financial support. Wilson would never send money to support his daughters. So what happened to those royalties? He kept them.
1: What a pig. Yes. Wow.
0: Yeah. Now his leaving led Helen and Barbara to take the adventure that Zelda discussed. And a publishing company wanted Helen to write about her travels as a book for them. So they left young Sabra behind with a guardian, not her father because he wasn't involved, and traveled to all the places that you mentioned earlier. And they sailed from New York to Barbados with a suitcase, two typewriters, and very little money. So their travels would take them to the Caribbean islands, a trip through the Panama Canal, time in Fiji, Tahiti, Samoa, the Tonga Islands, and finally ending in Honolulu. The rest, Zelda already covered, so I'm not going to get into any more detail there. But what I find fascinating is that Sabra didn't, hadn't seen her immediate family in over a year, maybe two at this point, by the time you know they're in Honolulu. In fact, when they reached the West Coast again, Sabra was still in New Haven with the friend. And that's not all I find a bit shocking. Barbara was left with the friend of Helen's, so Helen could go back to Hawaii. So, <laughs> and But, you yeah. know, I get it. She was 16. Sabra was 6. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now after all the problems with barbara in 1929 wilson and margaret drove from maine because all of a sudden oh yeah i have this daughter where he had been working he had been in maine working on a novel and they went to los angeles helen would you know get back from hawaii she rushed back as soon as she heard the news and you know barbara left with helen in november you know at the start of this great depression for new york city well, I found Wilson and Margaret living in Los Angeles as boarders at the Pickwick Apartments on 833 Grand Avenue in the 1930 census. And so they stayed. He worked as an author for a publication and she worked as a typist. Now, according to Wilson and Margaret's grandson, Stefan, they got jobs working for MGM as script readers. Okay, that does seem cool, but he's
1: still a pig.
0: Yeah, oh yeah. And some of their co-workers included... Lillian Hellman, and Dorothy Parker. Wow. Yeah. And what script readers would do, and they still do to this day, are read scripts and recommend whether or not to make it into a film. It's just one part along the path to becoming a movie. Wilson married Margaret in December 1931 in Yuma, Arizona. So keep this in mind. They've been together since 1928. Mm -hmm. Helen would not divorce him for the longest time, but that didn't stop them from living together. Mm Mm-hmm. And they didn't get married until December 1931.
1: And they had to get married in Yuma, Arizona. Which, yes.
0: Have you been to Yuma?
1: <laughs> no, I haven't. Yeah. Let me just say, not a whole lot there now. Can't
0: mm-hmm. imagine what was there then. And I did find the marriage record on that one. So they would have three children together. 1931 was also the year that Margaret published her own novel, The Kirby's, which is out of print today. In 1932, the couple would head back east and settle in Vermont. Wilson and Barbara would reunite at this time, with Barbara even attending her half-sister Jane's birthday in 1937. Wilson would return to New York working for Knopf in the early 1940s and remain there for a number of years until 1953 when he would move on to another publishing house. It was while working at Hill and Yang that he wrote Modern American Usage, A Guide his most popular book ever. And I mean, it was it, it was the standard for a long time. The book, though, would not be published until three years after his death in 1963 at the age of 75. Before we go back into the tree and get into the woods of it, um, I want to take a few minutes to discuss Barbara's seemingly neglected sister, Sabra. And I couldn't ignore her once again, mainly because she was amazing. Yeah, I'm so glad you're talking about her. Much like her older sister, Sabra was brilliant. She attended Sarah Bernard College and became the senior class president. I found a lovely article from the school newspaper with a feature on her, where she was described as fun-loving, social, and studious. You know, and oh, she was studious. And what was funny, there was like a whole statement where she's like, the whole point of going to college is to learn, so you need to be learning. Type of thing. I mean, that's not uh-huh. an exact quote, but that's as close as you get. <laughs> she was a permanent fixture on the dean's list, president of the German club, member of the Glee club, elected to Phi Beta Kappa, and graduated top of her class in 1945 with a degree in international studies and a knowledge of several languages. Wow. Yeah. Instead of getting into diplomatic work as she initially hoped, She married Edward Messerby and returned to school at Columbia University, where she would obtain a master's in 1948. After she graduated, she would teach at the college level. Her husband, Edward, was also an academic and a physicist. The couple would have three boys and eventually settle at least for a time in Princeton, New Jersey, where Edward worked as a research scientist. Hmm. And Zelda already talked about this briefly, but... I found an article about Sabra from the Arizona Daily Star on May 27, 1961, with the headline, Princeton Accepts a Woman Student. As startling and perhaps as prophetic as the statement made earlier this year that women's colleges someday would become coeducational, is the acceptance for the 1961 fall term by Princeton University of a woman student. You know, when I'm thinking about this, this is just 60 years ago, and it was shocking that women would be going to school with mm-hmm. men.
1: Yeah. Well, and an Ivy League school.
0: Yeah. You know, because women weren't allowed,
1: you know, as Jewish people weren't either. So That's true. That's how Brandeis got founded.
0: But that's a whole other story. Yeah, that's a whole. Not in 215 years since its founding has Princeton accepted a female. The Fallen Rolly will pursue Oriental Studies toward a Doctor of Philosophy degree. Adding to the remarkable nature of her matriculation is that will be with the aid of a fellowship. Nice. Yeah. Princeton made no explanation, or at least none was published, as to why it broke its tradition. The Princeton co-ed, Mrs. Sabra Follett Messervy, is the mother of three boys. Perhaps she promised to send them to Princeton. Oh my god. They had to add the sexist crap at the end, didn't they? Oh my god. (laughs) Wow. That's that's nuts. It can't be on her merits or the fact that she's brilliant. Where was, where was her husband working at the time? Do we know? He was working at Princeton. Yeah.
1: It could be a trailing spouse issue, but still, they recognized that she was a, a smart cookie. So yeah.
0: They wouldn't have accepted her had she not. I usually make fun of Princeton, but they did one thing, right? Yeah. right? Eventually, Sabra and Edward would divorce. I'm not quite sure when, but she married again in March 1982 to Arnold M. Toback. It was a second marriage for both. Sabra died in March 1994. She was 70. As far as I can tell, her second husband is still living, but I'm not positive. He was born in 1931, and if he's still Mm -hmm. living, he's just having a nice long life. Good on him. And kudos to him for finding such a smart woman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're going to focus on Sabra and Barbara's mother, Helen, and her family line to begin going into the tree. So who was Helen? She was a writer with at least nine books authored or co-authored by her. Most are not in print. but include titles such as Men of the Sulu Sea and Magic Portholes. If you ever want to see her papers, there's a collection stored in the Columbia University Archives. Helen was born in June 1883 in Boston, Massachusetts, to English native Robert Thomas and his wife, Lizzie Humphrey Newhall. Helen had an older brother, Robert Newhall Thomas, just three years her senior. Sadly, when Helen was only four years old, her father, Robert, died of tuberculosis. He was mm. just 38. Oh, that's so sad. And I believe he knew his life was coming to an end because he wrote out a will just one month just one month before his death. Oh wow. Yeah, a will leaving everything to his wife Lizzie. And I believe Helen's mother Lizzie was resourceful. Born in 1850 in Boston, she lived outside of her family home by 1870 as a servant. She and Robert would marry on February 26, 1878, in Boston. Both were around the age of 27 when they married. And after the loss of her husband, who was a school superintendent in Boston, Mm. I'm not quite sure how she may do. If what they had was enough to tide her over for a while or not. Mm. I don't know because the 1890 census went up in flames with only small sections surviving. But from the Boston City Directory, it appears that they left a home at 597 Tremont Street where they had lived with her parents since they married, to settle at 40 Mather Street, four miles to the south in Dorchester. And I believe the neighborhood they moved from was slightly nicer than the one that they moved to. But I'm not as familiar with Boston and the history, and my research wasn't giving me enough information. Okay. One thing I do love to do, though, is look up addresses on Google Maps and sometimes learn more about the property via Zillow or Realtor. And according to Zillow, the house on Mather Street was built in 1890. Mm. So if it's true, then she had the home built and remained there for a number of years after her husband died or just moved into a brand new home. Nice. In the 1900 and 1910 censuses, I found her living at the address with her son, Robert, along with some boarders in the home. By 1920, she lived with Helen, Wilson and Barbara at their home in Providence, as I mentioned earlier. And she even moved with them to New Haven, Connecticut. She likely died in New Haven after 1920, but I have no idea when she died or where. I was unable to find any death record, any tombstone, nothing. So unless she remarried and that's why I can't find her, I don't know where she went. (laughs) And I doubt she remarried because at this point, I mean, by 1920, she hadn't remarried. Mm -hmm. You know, she had been a widow for a long time. So who knows? Now, while I know next to nothing about Barbara's grandfather, Robert Thomas, or his family, I do have quite a bit of information on her grandmother, Lizzie's family. Mm. Lizzie was the daughter of Benjamin W. Newhall and Lydia Humphrey. She was the oldest of four daughters, but the only child to survive past the age of two. Mm. In essence, she would have been raised as an only child. Benjamin, who was born in 1817 in Massachusetts, started working at 17 years old at a factory, Chickering and Sons, as an apprentice. At least, according to his obituary, that is. Chickering and Sons was in the business of manufacturing pianos. And the company was founded by Jonas Chickering in 1823. Hmm. So when he started working there, you know, if he did start at 17, the company was only 11 years old at this point. This company would stay in business making pianos until 1983. Not only that, but they made the grand piano for Jenny Lynn's nationwide tour starting in August 1850. Oh, that's cool. And um, Benjamin Newhall was working for Chickering when they made that piano. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) So Benjamin married Lydia Humphrey on September 14th, 1846, still making pianos. And Benjamin was the son of Daniel R. Newhall, born in 1787, and Betsy Wyman, born in 1791, both from Massachusetts. And you you can see where they got their names, though, because it was Barbara Newhall Follett. So she got that from... Um, Her grandfather, Benjamin, Mm -hmm. and Sabra Wyman Follett, Mm -hmm. and she got that from her grandmother. I just love that, how names follow, or her great-grandmother, I should say. Um, Daniel and Betsy married in 1812 and had at least four children, three sons and one daughter. And Father Daniel worked as a mason, at least in 1850 he did. But his sons would all work with making pianos starting with the oldest son, Daniel Burt, Newhall. By the late 1820s, while still a teenager, Daniel had already formed a partnership selling and making pianos with John Dwight, Dwight and Newhall Pianos. Mm. In fact, they held a patent in 1824 for an iron bar that was the forerunner for a cast iron plate used later in pianos. Daniel would have been 11 when that patent was filed for, so... I don't know if that was him or somebody's mixed up and his dad was working there for a time hmm. because they had the same first name. I don't know. But in 1832, that partnership dissolved and Daniel Burt would partner with Levi Wilkins to make Wilkins and Newhall Pianos, a company that would dissolve at Daniel's sudden and unexpected death in 1855 at the age of 41. Oh, that's sad. It really is. Now, my source for some of this comes from the Antique dot com. I love that. Yeah, but they had one thing very wrong. On the website, it said that once Daniel died, his son Alfred took over the business. But there's a big problem with the statement. Daniel and his wife, Elizabeth Singer, did not have a son. Oh. In fact, they had only one child, Helen, who was just a baby when her father died. Their fifth child, but the only one who would live into adulthood. Wow. Yeah. So it was not Daniel's son who took over his business, but rather it was his brother, Alfred. Who took over the piano making oh. business? Hmm. His younger brother, and I believe he was the youngest. Yeah, he was the youngest brother in the Newhall family. He would form his firm with John B. Mullen and Nelson S. Reed. The company would come to be known as A. Newhall and Company. It was likely around this time that Benjamin left Chickering and Sons to join his brother. And he would remain there until his death at age 61 in 1879. Hmm. Now, the pianos made by the Newhall brothers are, even today, considered to be extremely well made. According to the antique piano website that I mentioned, they are quite rare today and often museum caliber. Hmm. Now, the website said that the company stopped making the pianos soon after the Civil War, and that seems to be the case. I did find an ad, though, indicating that the brothers were repairing and remaking secondhand pianos after the war. Interesting. Alfred would follow Benjamin in death in 1882. He was 59. So all the brothers died fairly young. Yeah. While I don't have much more on the Newhall family other than their amazing pianos, and I'm going to link to a website so you can see them, and I have ads from the papers with pictures, I do have a lot more information on Betsy Wyman, the mother of Benjamin Newhall and second great-grandmother of Barbara. But we'll make this quick because there's a lot more to cover still. A lot more really good stuff to cover, I should say. Betsy's family can probably be traced beyond what I'm going to share, but I did go back as far as her 4th great grandparents, Barbara's eighth-grades, I think I have that right, Thomas Richardson and Catherine Duxford, who were born and lived in 16th century England. Their grandson, Francis Wyman, a tanner by trade, would be the first Wyman to come to Massachusetts Bay Colony. Sometime before 1650, the year he married, Abigail Reed. He was 33, she 19. Francis and Abigail would have many successful great-grandchildren, including President Herbert Hoover, Tim and Tyne Daly, Ben Affleck, Cindy Crawford, Donnie, and Mark Wahlberg. Oh my gosh. And of course, Barbara Newhall Follett. Wow. But wait, there is so much more. It's time to discuss the Humphrey family. Now, as you may or may not recall, because... I you know, when you're listening to us talk, I'm throwing out names and it can overwhelming, I'm sure, listening to it. Lydia Humphrey was Barbara's great grandmother, and she was married to Benjamin Newhall. Now Lydia, while born in LeBec, Maine, was a Massachusetts girl. That's where she was raised. She died just six years after the death of her husband at the age of sixty six. Lydia's parents were Giles Humphrey and Sarah Thaxter, both from families with deep. Massachusetts roots. Giles descended from Colonel John Humphrey, a Puritan who helped fund the colonization of the New World, specifically a Massachusetts Bay colony. He was a well-educated man from a respectable English family, attending Trinity College, Cambridge, and then law at Lincoln's Inn. Wow. Now, from what I was reading, Lincoln's Inn is where it's affiliated with passing the bar in England and or the ends are, it's just this whole thing. It's complicated. I didn't want to get into it on here. Um, I didn't understand it all. <laughs> do,
1: you, do you want me to explain it?
0: or do yes, you want please. Me to? Yes, please. Okay, so the ends of court
1: are kind of like legal fraternities of a sort. Okay. But in order to be a barrister, it is my <laughs> understanding, you have to belong to one of those ends. So it ah. could be a, what we would call a litigator here in the U.S., they're called barristers. And if you're not a litigator in the US, you're generally just called a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, over there, they it's a solicitor. So it's a lawyer who does not appear in court. Oh. Um, and fun fact, when I was studying in Cambridge during law school, uh, we got to go visit the Inns of court. And um, it was pretty fascinating, actually. So
0: anyway, there How you go. How did I not know you were at Cambridge?
1: I don't know because I honestly tell everybody who sits still long enough to listen. so <laughs> <laughs> you were even more awesome than I even knew. <laughs> it was a, it was fun. it was fun. I learned a lot. so okay. that was pretty cool.
0: Thank you for filling any time. and because you were at Cambridge, you had that little bit of a knowledge for us. just a smidge. Okay, well the colonel would not make his way over to Massachusetts Bay Colony until 1634, though he made a few attempts to get adequate funding in the 1620s. His attempt was a success as he helped to fund the Winthrop Fleet of 1630. This would be the first large-scale migration from England since the first groups of Puritans. While Governor John Winthrop and his party established their colony in Massachusetts, John Humphrey stayed behind in London, protecting their charter for the first few years. Now, John Humphrey was married three times. It was to his third wife, Lady Susan Clinton Fiennes, that Barbara descended. John and Lady Susan were her sixth great-grandparents, mm. and I think I counted that right. <laughs> and yes, that, as the name implies, Lady Susan was of the aristocracy, the daughter of Thomas Clinton, 3rd Earl of Lincoln. Wow. And I believe part of her branch, and I didn't dig and verify, but might be tied to one of the kings of England. Wow. John quickly became dissatisfied with life in Massachusetts after he got there. He was more religiously tolerant than most of the Puritans in Massachusetts at the time. And as such, he decided to return to England in 1641. While in England, he worked with others on an effort to establish a colony in the Bahamas, hoping that that one would be a lot more tolerant community. He would never see that happen as he died in 1651 at 54. Mm. And I gotta tell you, I've seen... I'm not even sure that's the year he died for certain. I've seen three dates. (laughs) And I can't tell which one's accurate. I've seen 1651, 1652, and 1661. So he died sometime between 1651 and 1661. And that's what I know for sure. That is a bit of an array. Um, But that's not all I found with the Humphrey family. In fact, I found a connection tying Barbara Follett's family with my family. Oh, fun. Through marriage. Okay. So although technically we would share some cousins, although we're not blood relatives. Okay. Lydia Humphrey had three sisters and one brother. Her youngest sister, 10 years younger, FYI, um, Sarah married William Spaulding Shattuck in August 1859. As soon as I saw the last name Shattuck, I suspected we might be related. You see, Hmm. I grew up knowing I was a descendant of William Shattuck, who was born in 1621 England and settled in Watertown, Massachusetts before 1642. I mean, this is something I've known since I was a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was my 11th great-grandfather, and since he and his wife Susanna Hayden had 10 children, the family grew and multiplied exponentially. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a tree that's been well-researched and documented in at least two books, and I'm listed in one of those books. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, I dug a little and found that William Spaulding Shattuck was the second great-grandson of my ninth great-grandfather, thus making him my third cousin seven times removed.
1: Wow. So you could get married. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, he's dead, but you know, <laughs> and I'm married, but you know, there's, yeah, you know, I'm sure we can work it out. <laughs> <laughs> so enough of that nonsense. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, Barbara's great, great grandmother was Sarah Thaxter who married Giles Humphrey. And it turns out That Sarah Thaxter was a Mayflower descendant. Oh. Via Mayflower passenger Richard Warren and his wife Elizabeth Walker Warren, thereby making Barbara Newhall Follett and Sabra, her sister, Mayflower descendants. That's very cool. Now, I got the following information from Mayflower Births and Deaths Volumes 1 and 2. Richard arrived ahead of his wife and children. They would join him in 1623 once the colony was better established. But their time with Richard would be brief as he died in 1628, around 50 years old. His daughter Elizabeth, the one that um, is the ancestor of Barbara, was around 12 when her father died. Wow. At his death, Elizabeth was made the executor of his estate. So his wife was made the executor. After his death and after she was made the head of the estate, she became the head of household, essentially. And her name could be found in all the records as an agent in her own right, paying taxes and the whole thing. Wow. She was very independent. Mm-hmm. And this is the maternal side. So I, you can kind of see where that strength in the maternal line came from. It, it goes back to the Puritans and Mayflower. But I'm going to go quickly through the line of descent to get to Sarah Thaxter and therefore connect Barbara Follett as a Mayflower descendant. So Richard and Elizabeth had seven children. Daughter Elizabeth... Warren married Richard Church. They had a daughter, Abigail, who married Samuel Thaxter. Samuel and his wife, Deborah Lincoln, had son, Seth Thaxter, who was the father of Sarah Thaxter. Okay, now if you thought any of that was interesting so far, well, just you wait. I have so much more because I have yet to touch on the paternal line of Roy Wilson Follett. Wilson's parents were Charles William Follett and Cordelia Adelaide White. A quick reminder, Wilson was raised as an only child, and it turns out his father Charles was an only child, born in September 1855 in Rentham, Massachusetts. In 1876, at the age of 21, he married Angeline Makepeace, a local girl from Rentham, just one year his junior. The couple would have no children, and in some time between 1880 and 1883, Angeline remarried in June 1883 so they must have divorced. Oh. Cordelia White was the oldest of four children born in November 1859. Much like Charles, she had a starter marriage. On New Year's Eve of 1874 at the age of 15, and recently turned 15, mind you, she married 31-year-old Frances Ballou Fisher in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Ew. Yeah. The marriage ended in divorce with no children before 1880. Now, Charles and Cordelia wed sometime around 1884. Charles would follow in his father's footsteps by working with jewelry at a factory, a job he likely held until his death at 73 in 1928. Cordelia would live for about three more decades, not dying until she was 93. Charles's father, William Edwin Follett, came from Providence County, Rhode Island, the oldest child of five, and his parents were Robert Follett and Francis B. Gorton. William was born in November 1833 in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. His father, Robert, was a carpenter who provided well for his family. They were by no means rich, but they were also not struggling to feed their children. You know, today's middle class. In 1854, at the age of 20, William married 23-year-old Hannah Thomas, daughter of John Thomas and Hannah Green. And the couple would leave Rhode Island and settle in North Attleboro, where they would remain. And just FYI, Hannah Thomas, I found no connection with Helen Thomas's family with her. Mm. I'm not saying it's not possible, but Thomas is because Thomas is a common name mm-hmm. and hard to trace in a short time frame. So William did not follow his father into carpentry, though, instead taking another path. In the 1860 census, he lists his occupation as jeweler. This, is a, this was a career he would continue until at least 1880. In that census, he listed his occupation as foreman for a jewelry manufacturer. From this, I gather that industrialization had made him reevaluate and change his career path just slightly. I mean, he was still on the same field, but he was no longer selling the jewelry he was helping to make it. And as far as I can tell, he continued working as a jewelry maker at a factory, likely with his son, Charles, until his death at age 75 in 1908, just four years after the death of his wife of 49 years, Hannah. Wow. You know, I keep saying they, they're working until their death. This was a time where there were no pensions. There was no retirement plans, So a lot of people did work until their death, unless they had save, found a way to save up or live with their children. Living with children was very common back then. So back to Cordelia White Follett, grandmother of Barbara. She was the daughter of Wilson Tingley White and Martha Powers. I wasn't able to go back much further on the White family because common names are tough. Mm-hmm. And I know I have Whites in my line. <laughs> it's not easy unless mm-hmm. they happen to have odd first names. Mm-hmm. So I was only able to go as far as Wilson's father, Timothy White, which, again, very common name. And Timothy was born in 1808, likely in Massachusetts. However, Timothy's wife, Mary Ann Freder was a little easier to find. And it turns out she was the granddaughter of revolutionary patriot Benjamin Tingley. Born on April twenty fourth, seventeen forty one, in Attleboro, Massachusetts. Oh wow! And his wife, Sybolla Fuller. Sybolla,
1: that rhyming with Ebola. How <laughs> do you spell her first name?
0: That's a it's it's S Y B U L L A. That is a like syllabus almost, almost. But Cibola. we the L there. It's yeah, and then we have the two Ls and the two Ls. It's like Cibola Fuller. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's a wow tongue twister mouthful and it's through their daughter sarah who married morris fredder in 1797 so uh, let me go over that again mary ann fredder's parents were sarah tingley and morris fredder and sarah tingley was the daughter of benjamin tingley and sabella fuller and benjamin had been a revolutionary patriot jeez you did it I'm i did so oh my goodness sakes So, now Wilson Tingley White was born in 1839 in Massachusetts, where he would meet and marry a young woman with deep Massachusetts roots herself, Martha Powers, in November 1857. The couple would leave Massachusetts and settle in Cumberland, Rhode Island by 1870. Wilson worked for most of his life as a farmer, although there was a brief period where he was employed as a wheelwright, according to the 1875 Massachusetts State Census and the 1880 U.S. Federal Census. I suspect that money was tight and this job helped pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And at least in the 1875 Massachusetts state census, he wasn't the only one working out of the home. Daughter Cordelia, at the time married to Francis Fisher, her first husband, worked as a school teacher, while Francis worked as a stonecutter. The couple had four children, Cordelia, and that was the grandmother of um, Barbara, Henry, Walter Cole, and Mary Lynette. All but one would make it to adulthood. Mm. little henry w white died at the age of three and a half of scarlet fever in 1865 Mm. martha powers who was married to wilson teenley white and she was the great grandmother of barbara well her father so barbara's great great grandfather was james roland powers so he was grandson of progenitor edward powers and that's as far back as i go on the powers line edward was born in massachusetts in 1726 In 1753, he married Phyllis Bartlett in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, and they'd had nine children. Their youngest was Daniel, born in 1769. Two years later, Phyllis died. Edward would remarry to Elizabeth Betty Wheatley, a woman just eight years his junior. Edward and Betty had two children together. Their youngest, Roland, was James Roland Powers' father, born on July 25, 1775. So Roland Powers was Barbara's third great-grandfather. So just two days after the baptism of Roland, and this is in July 1775, so the, the beginnings of the Revolutionary War, Edward mustered in to serve under Captain Daniel Lothrop in Massachusetts. Unlike how the military works today, though, most enlistments were of a short duration, some as short as 15 days, some even shorter. Edward would enlist at least eight times from 1775 to the end of 1778. I believe his shortest duration was 15 days and his longest was like seven months. Edward survived the war and lived a long life, dying in 1813 at the age of 87. Wife, Betty, would follow four years later at the age of 83. Sadly, his son, Roland, would not live a life quite as long as his father. Six years after his marriage to Nancy McPherson... And three months before son, James Rowland, again, Barbara's second great-grandfather was born, Rowland died. Hmm. So his son never knew his father. Wow. He was 40 when he died. James would be raised by his mother and stepfather, Cyrus Blackington. At the age of 21, James Rowland married Martha Miranda Walcott in Rensselaer, Massachusetts on March 4th, 1837. They'd have their first child the next year, Martha Powers. That's Barbara's grandmother. Six more children would follow. Then death came to call, starting with Martha in October 1858, who died of a fever at the age of 41. Mm. The next year, James married his second wife, widow Mrs. Cynthia Hawes George in Attleboro, Massachusetts. He was 43. She was 25. Ew. (laughs) Yeah, ew. But I, you know, I sometimes wonder if they married the younger wives because they had young children and they thought that would be better for raising. I don't know. Although I would think... I don't know. I think, eh, I don't know.
1: I mean, marriage was a whole lot more about survival back then. Yeah, and and she was
0: a widow, so I could see why she was attracted to him, Mm -hmm. so. Well, and she's a full-grown adult at that point. Right, oh yeah, so it's just, you, and just in terms of preference, but yeah. By the 1860 census, I found James, Cynthia, his daughter Catherine, and her son Henry living together in Wrentham next to his mother, two of his children, William and Ida, living with her. I was unable to find three of his daughters. Twins, Cornelia and Cordelia, and Nancy in that census. And I searched. So basically, 1858, his wife dies. 1859, he remarries. 1860, the family's kind of broken up. And they were all, most of them were all living close together, although maybe not in the same residence. Okay. But I could not find three of his children with his first wife. Then in November 1861, daughter Cordelia died of a fever. Mm. 20 months later her twin cornelia died of consumption cornelia and cordelia yeah we're twins both died yes oh that's so sad it is james would live 10 more years dying at age 57 in august 1873 now we're going to talk more about the family of martha miranda walcott powers first wife of james Rowland, and there is a lot to discuss before we get into it, I need to say there are multiple variations or spellings of the last name Walcott, which makes researching a bit more tricky. It was spelled Walcott, W-A-L-C-O-T-T with just the one L, to Walcott with two L's, or Walcut, W-A-L-C-U-T, versus Walcott, which is the one T, and Woolcut, and Woolcott. You know, W-O-O-L? Oh my gosh. And even within this one line, there were multiple spellings. So I was never quite sure if I was spelling the last name correctly. I know this is small beans, but this is genealogy problems. So Martha was the third child born to Captain William Walcott and his wife, Lydia Fuller. Both were born in Massachusetts, William in 1786 and Lydia in 1789. They married in October 1811 in Attleboro, but their marriage would only last 13 years with William dying at age 36 in 1825. Wow. Despite four of their six children being under 10 years old, Lydia never remarried. Wow. That's surprising. I know. It, it was almost shocking because I'm like, wait, I, I even went back to go, did this miss a marriage because it just didn't seem mm-hmm. normal. And that might sound odd to people listening in today's day and age, but that really wasn't typical back at the time because A woman did not have her own occupation, and a woman typically didn't have her own money. They were relying on men because that was the law and everything else. But somehow she found a way to make do. In the 1850 census, she had real estate valued at $400, and her youngest daughter, Nancy Maria, living with her. In fact, Nancy lived with her mother, unmarried, until Lydia's death in June 1862, Lydia being 73 when she died. Five months later, Nancy married a widower, Thaddeus Smith. I don't know if it was happily ever after, but I know she waited until after her mother died before getting married. Interesting. I thought so. I don't know. Maybe she felt an obligation to stay and help her mom. Yeah. And didn't find marriage was part of that. Or she didn't want to wait for her mom's approval. <laughs> All sorts of things go through your mind. Mm-hmm. Or if after her mom died, she's like, I need some support myself to live. So she, That's interesting. So many different variations. It could be true. So let's briefly discuss Lydia's family. And by briefly, I mean we are skipping a bunch of stuff because there's (laughs) only so much time on this podcast. So Lydia's parents were Jesse Fuller and Lydia Miller. Jesse was born in Bristol County, Massachusetts in 1752. He served in the Massachusetts militia during the Revolutionary War. So another Revolutionary War patriot. As I mentioned earlier, enlistments were different than they are today. And according to a Sons of the American Revolution application, Jesse enlisted and served at least six times, the shortest being 16 days and the longest seven months. Jesse married Lydia Miller in 1786. He was 34. She was 25. Both would live long lives, together reaching their 44th wedding anniversary before Lydia died at age 70. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Jesse followed two years later at age 79. As I went back on the Walcott line, I had to do a lot of triple checking to, due to the last names issues I mentioned earlier. So we're going to start with Captain William himself, who was married to Lydia Fuller. How did he get the title of captain? Well, he was just captain of his local militia and he owned a large estate, according to the Walcott book published in 1925. Now, William was the son of Pentecost Walcott and his first wife, Hannah Guild. Pentecost was not a preacher, like his name might imply. Rather, he was a yeoman born in 1745 in Attleboro. And let me tell you how difficult it is to Google the name Pentecost Walcott. (laughs) The only thing that would pop up was Pentecost information. That's funny. So in 1772, he married 25-year-old Hannah Guild. They would have six children, their youngest being William. After Hannah's death in 1807, he married Hannah Walker Sprout. Now, instead of continuing going back generation by generation, let's jump 100 years back to Barbara's 7th great-grandfather, Captain Jonathan Walcott, who was born sometime between March 1639 and March 1640. It is thought that he was the son of William Walcott and Alice Ingersoll, but I could find no conclusive evidence in the short time I researched. What is known about him has been gleaned from miscellaneous records, including some court records. For example... He was a constable in Salem in 1681, according to court records showing that he served a writ that year. And like his third great-grandson, William Walcott, he was a captain in the militia, or the Village Foot Company. Plus, he was deacon in the church. That's nice. Yeah. Jonathan married Mary Sibley in 1664. They would have seven children. In 1683, Mary died. She was 39. So, Jonathan married Deliverance Putnam, In 1685. He was 46, she 28. And Hmm. this was a particularly advantageous marriage. You see, Deliverance's father was Thomas Putnam, a man of great wealth and influence in Salem. And it is through Jonathan and Deliverance that Barbara descends. Interesting. Now, Deliverance's mother was Anne Holyoke, Thomas's first wife. Quick note here Anne's father was Edward Holyoke and mother was Prudence Stockton. Her brother, Eliza is the namesake of Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts.
1: I was going to ask. Oh, that's so interesting.
0: And the college is named after the Mount Holyoke. I mean, it's not named (laughs) after him, but there you go. And so indirectly, he is the namesake of Mount Holyoke College and the town of Holyoke, Massachusetts. Not only that, but her sister, Sarah, so uh, Anne Holyoke's sister, Sarah, was the sixth great-grandmother of President Taft. Wow, that's cool. As for Ann and Thomas, they would have many notable descendants, including the following grandchildren. And some names might sound like other people we just mentioned earlier. Betty Davis, Thomas Watson, football coach Bill Belichick, and Donnie and Mark Wahlberg. Ah, again. Yeah, all distance cousins to Barbara Newhall Follett. So she has double cousins in Donnie and Mark Wahlberg. How cool is that? One on the paternal and one on the maternal side. So <laughs> that's fun. Wow. But back to Jonathan and Deliverance. They would have seven children of their own, one of which was William Walcott, Barbara's sixth great-grandfather. Oh, and if you're adding, Jonathan fathered 14 children. Whoa. Yes. Now, it was William's half-sister, Jonathan's daughter with Mary Sibley, Mary Walcott, whose name would become associated with Salem, and the Witch Trials of 1692. Whoa. 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 Are you ready, Miss Zelda? I am braced. Mary, Barbara's half-sixth great-grand-aunt, was born in 1675, the fifth child born to Jonathan Walcott and Mary Sibley. She was 16 years older than half-brother William Walcott, so Barbara's grandfather, who was born a year before the events I'm about to discuss. 1691. But let's back up, because to understand all that happened, we need to understand what was going on before the witch trials, for those who might not know and the role barbara's family played in some of this as you know zelda the 17th century was a time filled with superstition and little scientific knowledge about disease among other things but this belief that witches existed and could bring harm to others goes back even further so much so that in 1542 england parliament passed the witchcraft act of 1542 making witchcraft a crime punishable by death the first such law in england Now, this law would be repealed a few years later, and a new one passed. In fact, there were two witchcraft acts in effect at the time of the Salem Witch Trials, the one from 1562 and 1604. These acts would move the trials out of the church and into criminal court. Then, in the colonies, they passed a similar witchcraft act called the Body of Liberties, passed in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1641. And like in England, it is a capital offense. And for those who don't know what that means, that means death. By 1662 in England, spectral evidence is considered credible. <laughs> Basically, you can admit your dreams into evidence or claim that a ghost came to visit you.
1: <laughs> I love this.
0: Wouldn't you love to try, see somebody try that today?
1: Seriously. So, like, my grandma came to me in my dreams, and when I woke up, she was sitting at the foot of my bed, and she told me, this guy's a rat bastard. So, yeah, I totally believe that he did that crime that he's he's accused
0: of. Oh, I mean, things would be a mess. Now, in Massachusetts, we have Salem Town and Salem Village. These are separate entities. I did not know that. I did not either until I got into this. With the latter... Salem Village being close to the former. <laughs> so they were right next to each other.
1: Well, that's irritating. Yeah,
0: they were not officially separate entities until 1671. Okay. And the village wanted to be separate from Salem Town. They wanted to separate themselves and they finally and they begged and they pleaded and it took a few years and they finally got it in 1671. So the village hired James Bailey as their minister. By 1679, some residents of the village were frustrated with Bailey, claiming that he was neglecting his duties. And the anti-Bailey faction had a majority in the next year in the village council, and Bailey was replaced by George Burroughs. Now, Burroughs left after a couple of years due to tensions in the church caused by factionalism. Basically, you have little cliques almost, little factions with their own political ideas, own things of how they want the town or the village run, and he was done with it. He's like, nope, I'm gone.
1: Yep, I can see why. Mm -hmm.
0: He returned to his previous home in Maine in 1683. Not long after he left, Burroughs briefly returned to meet with the village committee. I imagine he was surprised when he was arrested by Captain John Putnam, brother of Deliverance Putnam Walcott, Barbara's seventh great-grand-uncle. Why was Burroughs arrested? Well, they claimed he failed to pay back his salary advances, even though he returned to do just that. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, there's a lot more to this, but we only have so much time, and there's so much little detail on this. But I'll post links to the websites if you want more of the backstory on this conflict with Burroughs, because it, it does play a huge role in the stuff that happens. Um, however, he was soon released from custody with his account settled, and the village next hired Diodat Lawson as their minister in 1684. So, Diodat? Diodat. D-E-O-D-A-T. Huh. It's an unusual name. Yeah, this is their third minister since 1671 in 13 years. Hmm. And most of the people are leaving of their own accord. They're not like being fired or dying necessarily, but they're like, nope, I'm done. At the heart of the conflict in the village and in the church was the Putnam family, Barbara's ancestors, and their desire to maintain control of the village. You see, the Putnams owned most of the land that made up Salem Village. Tensions existed for many years before this. First with villagers who rented, resented those in Salem town. And even though they separated and became their own entity, the church of Salem and Salem town actually oversaw the village church. Ah, mm-hmm. so the village committee. And the, so they formed a committee that was responsible for a lot of things like taxing residents, church members or non-members alike. But the Putnams were not the only large landowning family in Salem village. There was one more, the Porter family. And these families were often at odds. Hmm. And they were made up separate factions within the church. And this is what led to the tensions and the factionalism. This is something that got worse when the village did separate from the town. Because they didn't have that town overseeing them as closely to make sure that they're behaving like adults and not children. I'm just saying. Again, there's so much more to the tensions between the Putnam's and the Porters. But it's important to understand that it existed before we get to the trials. So, deodat Lawson. He, you know, he gets there in 1684. He resigned four years later in 1688 because of tensions and factionalism within the church. Wow. Around the same time, a witchcraft allegation arose in Boston, but it stopped with one. And it was a case that involved Anne Glover, an Irish washerwoman, being accused of afflicting the children in the home of the Goodwin family where she worked. Mm-hmm. Now, Cotton Mather would write a book regarding the case titled Memorable Providences, published the very next year, 1689. Now, in November 1689, Reverend Samuel Paris was ordained as the new minister of Salem Village, mm. and he moved from Boston to Salem with his family. Now, for us, and the cars and stuff were like, oh, well, that's not that far. It was, you know, it was more of a distance back then because they're walking and horses. You know, it's not like... Mm-hmm. So we're going to go ahead a little bit. By October 1691, some villagers were unhappy with Reverend Paris, namely the Porter faction of the village. The Porters and their allies took control of the village committee. With control, they voted down a tax levy that would pay Paris's salary. Mm. This move infuriated Barbara's Putnam ancestors, particularly her seventh great granduncle, Thomas Putnam Jr. Paris was upset as well, and in the sermons that followed, he told the congregants of a conspiracy against the church within the village. Tensions are are hitting a crescendo here, you know, it's at the top. Mm -hmm. Paris is encouraging this. Keep in mind, at the same point of time, there was a great deal of concern about the indigenous people who were none too pleased with the colonizers and attacked communities. King William's war was underway. And what is that that's the French and Indian Wars part of that and it started in 1689 and would last until 1697 and this is where the French and the Indians were on one side and the British on the other and there was a small pox outbreak that resulted in the death of 500 in Salem village area in 1692 alone so all of this is going so the stage is set so let's go to the events on January 20th 1692 Abigail Williams Niece of Reverend Paris and his daughter Elizabeth Paris became afflicted with the same symptoms of the Goodwin girls in Boston just three years prior. You know the same events that were outlined in Mather's book: fits of screaming and going into violent contortions. Mm. Doctors and pastors were brought in to look at the girls. Soon, other girls started exhibiting the same symptoms, including Anne Putnam Jr., daughter of Thomas Putnam Jr., so Barbara's first cousin eight times removed. And Mary Walcott, daughter of Jonathan Walcott and Mary Sibley, the aunt of Barbara Follett. Wow. Half aunt, but yeah. Soon after, around mid-February, local doctor William Griggs diagnosed witchcraft as the cause of the girl's symptoms.
1: (sighs) As one does.
0: Yes. Now, note, Jonathan, like I said earlier, was the deacon of the church. Now, before the witch trials began, he opposed violent measures against anyone for any misbehavior. but. He believed his daughter, Mary, and he investigated the claims of witchcraft under the authority of the church. Okay. And he was on the Putnam side of things. So he was supporting Reverend Paris and Reverend, it's, it started with Reverend Paris's house. Wow. Now, I can get deep into all the next steps. It really is fascinating. And this is where I'm like, oh, my gosh, this could be a whole podcast. Like, and it could take years to get through everything because it's fascinating how the hysteria and the response everything Mm -hmm. but the finger pointing began about who could be a witch first people accused of witchcraft were sarah good sarah osborne and Tituba. Tituba was the paris family slave from the caribbean see samuel paris and his family had lived down in the caribbean and had slaves before coming up to massachusetts and they brought their slave with them wow and what better target than a woman of color a black Mm -hmm. woman From there on out, more and more people would be accused. By 1692, over 150 witches, supposed witches, had been jailed. You see, to save their lives, the accused would confess, then accuse others. Mm. But at least 19 refused to confess and were killed for their crimes. The first witch to be convicted and hung was Bridget Bishop. In the end, over 200 people would be accused of witchcraft. 30 found guilty and 19 executed. Fourteen women, five men by hanging, one man executed by pressing, and at least five dying in prison. Mm. (sighs) It's a horrible part of our history. One of the men executed for witchcraft was none other than Reverend George Burroughs. Wow. He was living in Wells, Maine, but was accused by Barbara's cousin, Ann Putnam Jr., as coming to her as an apparition. Oh, my God! The charges were brought against him by Captain Jonathan Walcott and his brother-in-law Thomas Putnam Jr. Wow, mm-hmm. And like
1: you didn't have to be even have to be local to get accused.
0: Nope, you just had to be affiliated with the village in some way, and it's wow. been said that George Burroughs was saying the Lord's Prayer as he was hung, and that oh, this was God. this would indicate that he couldn't be a witch because a witch couldn't say the Lord's Prayer. Right. But they hung them anyway. Wow. And as most people know, um, Arthur Miller would create a play called The Crucible based on the Salem Witch Trials. And it was kind of an allegory of McCarthyism mm-hmm. and that was going on at the time. And I know I read that in high school. Did you, Zelda? The Crucible? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, not all the people involved were characters in the play, but Follett's uncle... Thomas Putnam Jr. and his wife Anne were included in the book. Wow! And yeah, it's crazy. So I have some fun facts for us. Ooh! To end this on, I found something that piqued my interest in the Massachusetts 1865 state census with Benjamin and Lydia Newhall. Um, living in their home was Electra Shattuck, a dr- dressmaker. Recognize that last name, Shattuck? It seems familiar somehow. Yeah. So I checked and it turns out Electra was also a very distant cousin of mine. Oh, wow. So there are two Shattucks and, you know, kind of tied in with this family and the story. I just thought that was funny. Another note, John Humphrey Memorial House in Swampscott, Massachusetts was built in 1637 and relocated from its original location on Elmwood Road to Paradise Road. It's home to the Swampscott Historical Society. So if you want to see the home of one of Barbara Follett's ancestors, head on over to Paradise Road <laughs> in Swampscott, Massachusetts. Nathan Wyman, this is Barbara's maternal fourth great-grandfather, bought his farm from Matthew Stone on November ninth, 1742. It remained in the family until at least 1880. Wow. And this was, um, this was according to a book that was published around 1880, so it could still be in the family to this day. I do not know. Hmm. Um, Barbara's paternal granduncle was Walter Cole White. He was a mail carrier. We have no postmasters, but we have a mail carrier. And he was also a Mason. He belonged nice. to the Mount Horeb Lodge in Harwich, Massachusetts in 1933. he was a Mason starring in 1912. Well, that's nice. And that is the family tree of Barbara Newhall Bollett wow denise there was some fun stuff this week i thought so it was really interesting now i I gotta ask you a question zelda does your family have any ties to the salem witch trials not that i know of Mm -mm. my family does yeah i think it makes for an interesting story along with some others but instead of discussing it now what do you think about us talking about interesting tales in our family trees and maybe the trees of others that they want to share with us for our christmas episode Oh, that'd be fun. I like that idea. Yeah, and maybe we can get a guest or two on the show with us as well. That'd be super fun. So if you have like a crime in your family you want to share with us or an interesting tale in your family tree, please send us an email. It's at podcast at com, or go to the website and you can contact us that way or Mm -hmm. social media, whatever. But I think that would make for a fun episode. And we need (laughs) that. Super fun. And I'll be putting out stuff on social media asking people to share. Perfect. Yay. I I have a couple more things because I forgot to say these at the top. Oh, my gosh. So, we have two new reviews, Zelda. (gasps) Really? Oh, my gosh. Tell me more. This is exciting. Okay, here's the first one. Murderous Fruits takes the true crime formula a step further with its focus on family and origins. It's a simple shift of focus from the usual premise most other shows take, but it's effective. It's well-researched, well-presented, and easy to listen along with. They also cover a variety of people and cases. I don't recall anyone else covering Harry T. Hayward, for instance. It's well-balanced between history and true crime. Give them a listen and subscribe now. That's from Derelict88. Thank you. Yeah. And then the next one is one of the best podcasts I've listened to. I love a good backstory, and these ladies hit it out of the park. As an amateur genealogist and a true crime buff, this is right up my alley. These gals are not only 100% factual, but are also entertaining. Totally love this. And that's from Of Mark. Yay! So thank you. Thank you for the reviews, guys. We love it. So keep those coming in for us.
1: <laughs> Please. I mean, honestly, it's not like we're making money off of this. We live for yeah. the praise. Yes, we So do. <laughs> tell good. us we're good and we'll keep going. <laughs>
0: and I... I also have a couple corrections from the last, not the last episode, but the one we bef- the last, uh, new episode we made. And that is, um, I had shared a notice about this was the Lee Harvey Oswald episode. And I shared a notice about the Oswalds leaving Mississippi. And this is so little minor thing, but the notice was published in 1841. By implied, it was right before the 1860 census. It was just a goof on my part. Okay. I know your, your honesty thing. is to be commended. I'm just, I'm very much um, fact driven. So sorry. And I also mentioned the biography of Chicago mobster, Sam Gambino. There is no such person who was a Chicago mobster. I meant Sam Giancana. So ah, minor dip. I know these are like little minor details, but it was bothering me and I had to put it down. So I wouldn't forget that was so much fun. So are you reading or write or Listening or watching anything in particular right now, other than the Wheel of Time, which I know. Oh
1: man, I love the Wheel of Time. You can't um, give up. I,
0: I'm, I'm like two episodes behind right now.
1: <laughs> okay. I won't, I won't spoil anything for you then. Um, actually, what I'm really gearing up for is, you know, it's the end of the year. So this is my busy season at work uh, and yeah. lots of stuff happening with that. I am determined to finish reading, um, Barbara Follett's young novel. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really is delightful. It's just that because it's not in a traditional book format, it's just like pages on a computer. Just, you know, it feels like it takes a little longer to do it just because yeah. it's a little harder to read that way. But, uh, but it's a great story and I am just looking forward to the holidays, Denise. How about you? Um,
0: same. Um, I am reading Eye of the World by Robert Jordan. The Excellent. first in the Wheel of Time series. I have not gotten very far, and it's not because it's not good. It's just I keep getting distracted by children and mm-hmm. stuff going on at home. So, you know, what was I've read over 75 books this year, and this last month or so I'm, like, reading one page a day. Uh-huh. That's how slow it's going. <laughs> That's so, okay, I, though. You know? But it's, it, you know, it's that time of year where things get a little crazy, you try and get things together for family, and a lot to juggle. Um, I hear you. I'm actually
1: like my ambition today is I'm going to bake a quiche. Now, I meant to do that this morning before we podcasted before we recorded and I just didn't. The time flew this morning and now I'm sitting here like, "Mm, I'm really hungry. I could make the quiche or I could just make something else and then make the quiche tomorrow. But I have a feeling if I do that, I will never make the quiche and I have shouldn't
0: take that long to cook.
1: Well, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Quiche is one of those impressive things that like looks a lot more impressive than it really Mm -hmm. is. And I have all the ingredients all chopped up. I just have to like mix it all and throw it in the oven. But you know how it goes when you're getting distracted and then all of a sudden it's like 10 o'clock at night and the, the quiche has not made its way into the oven. So, yeah, I just realized I'm, I never ate lunch
0: today. I'm yeah, that's distracted. probably a good plan for you to do next. Well, it's a little late, but I might have a little small like an apple or something to tie me over until dinner. But yeah, um the only other thing I'm doing is I'm watching Christmas movies.
1: Nice. My aunt gave me a coffee mug that says this is my official Hallmark movie watching mug. And it's red and it's super cute. And I'm like, yeah, that is now officially my mug for watching Hallmark movies. Yeah.
0: Well, that was a lot of fun. Zelda.
1: Oh my gosh, Denise. I had a great time as always. You brought the receipts and they're fun to go through.
0: I loved your analysis about Nickerson Rogers and it put it in a way. I hadn't thought of it before, so I appreciated that.
1: Well, this was a really fun one to do. And even though it had a tragic ending, mm-hmm. I was really grateful to have a bit of a relief from like torture and beheading and stuff like that. So yes. we'll, we'll get back to nice. that at the new year. <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, and we do have some exciting stuff happening in the next year, by the way, people. We're going to be collaborating with another podcast. Ooh. At le- well. We're going to have a crossover with one podcast and we're going to collaborate with another. So we have two podcasts we're going to be working with in the future. And one's a genealogy podcast and the other one is another true crime podcast. So this could be a lot of fun. Oh, my gosh.
1: So many things to look forward to in 2022. Not just that it will no longer be 2021, which wasn't quite the dumpster fire that 2020 was. However, it definitely had its dark moments.
0: Yeah, I used to be an optimist. Then the pandemic happened, and I don't know what's happened to me. But <laughs> on that yeah. note, everybody have a great week, and we will be back in two weeks with our next episode. And thanks for joining us. Happy holidays! Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at murderousroots.com, that's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S.com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.